0: This is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith.
1: Horrendous climate-driven storms are here. Do we need a new level on the hurricane-tropical-storm scale? From Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, senior scientist Dr. Michael Wehner makes the case for CAT6. Are you Ready? Electricity from natural gas is more reliable than renewables, right? Wrong. Mark Specht from the Union of Concerned Scientists finds gas plant failures bring grids down. From the New Zealand Mertz Institute, founder Joseph Mertz, on the latest world scientist warning, the behavioral crisis driving ecological overshoot. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. The European Union's Copernicus project just announced Earth has been over 1.5 degrees C, over pre-industrial, for the last 12 months. We already reached the climate safety barrier predicted for the year 2030 or later. The top UN climate body released their special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees C in 2018, and it was loaded with warnings of why we shouldn't go there. International climate conferences with tens of thousands of delegates were told 1.5 degrees C warming was the goal. It's still possible. No. No longer. The UN's IPCC already claim 1.5 only counts if it lasts not one year, but for a decade or so. And that's a long time to find out what happens. We may dip lower next year if recent predictions of a switch back to the cooler La Nina ocean pattern develops later in 2024. Some are seeing that coming. Or we may keep climbing from 1.5. Anyway, the IPCC officials are counting on carbon capture and storage technology, or geoengineering, to bring temperatures back down again, back below 1.5. Carbon capture is nowhere to be found, we have not even researched geoengineering in any meaningful way. Geoengineering is not like an experiment you can do in a lab. The whole planet is the lab, and you can't take it back if side effects develop, like a monsoon failure over the crops feeding billions of people. We have been sold shiny dreams while fossil fuel demand, production, and emissions keep climbing to record levels. Shiny dreams from official sources could be the death of us. Farewell to 1.5, and onward to the hotter future. Let's go to our first guest. Giant storms with floods and ocean surge are stronger in recent decades. Call them hurricanes, typhoons, or tropical cyclones, they carry winds so strong, scientists want to add a whole new level. If Cat 5 or super typhoon is not enough, what is a Cat 6? Have they arrived? Dr. Michael Weiner is a senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. As a recognized expert, Weiner published over 250 peer-reviewed papers, many heat waves on extreme weather and tropical cyclones in a time of climate change. He is the lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports and the U.S. National Climate Assessments. From San Francisco, Michael Wehner. Welcome back to Radio Ecoshock. Thank you for having me. You and James Cosson just published in PNAS the growing inadequacy of an open-ended Sapphire simpson hurricane wind scale in a warming world. You say as wind speed increases, quote, the destructive potential of the wind increases exponentially. Now, does that mean that the wrecking power of the storm gets even stronger with, e- with each mile per hour of Cat 5 uh, that's, that's added? So 170 mile per hour winds are much worse than 150, more than the number scale suggests?
0: Well, I'm not sure I would go that far. Um, the, these winds are, are kind of unimaginable. Um, our hypothetical Category 6 would start at 192 miles an hour. Surprisingly, there have already been five storms that have reached that wind speed, the most hazardous of, what, of which are, was Typhoon Haiyan, which caused a whole great deal of death and destruction in the Philippines. But the strongest storm ever was Hurricane Patricia, and I looked this up recently, and its peak wind speed was 214 miles an hour, which is almost hard to comprehend. I mean, that's faster than a, at least a stock Ferrari. Um, And so, you know, you think about that kind of wind and what is it going to do? Um, It's going to blow the roof off, I should imagine. But more importantly, it's going to exacerbate storm surge if the storm is coming in the wrong direction that caused the storm surge, and certainly the amount of rainfall that that, that falls on, on land.
1: Other planets have faster winds. On Neptune, it can go up to 1,200 miles per hour or 2,000 kilometers an hour. Those are blowing around methane clouds. What on Earth is limiting wind speeds here? What in the planetary physics sets that protective limit, do you think?
0: What we, what we did in this paper is we looked at something called the potential intensity or maximum potential intensity, which is a concept that Kerry Emanuel at MIT introduced about 20 years ago. And this considers a, a perfect storm where, where all the large-scale meteorology is perfect for a storm to be reach its maximum intensity, its maximum wind speed, as a, a Carnot engine that, that transfers energy from the surface of the ocean to the top of the storm, which is usually at the tropopause, the boundary between the troposphere and the stratosphere. And this is really a speed limit on you know, the perfect storm. We found that this, this speed limit has a, has a trend in the observations, or a proxy for the observations more specifically. And that, that trend is due to to humans, and so that was sort of the, one of our main conclusions: is that the speed limit is increasing on planet Earth. Now, this simplified model doesn't take into account all the processes that happen in a in a in a very intense storm. Very intense storms tend to be unstable, and they undergo things called something called an eyewall replacement cycle, where where the inner eyewall forms very uh, distinctly and then breaks down. That can weaken the storm during that process when it's breaking down, and um, these stability issues aren't encounter, aren't included in in Kerry Emanuel's theoretical model. So I don't think we really know what the strongest storms could be. Um, we do write that it doesn't appear that those limits have been reached.
1: In the U.S. was hit by three Cat five storms in 2005: Katrina, Wilma, and Rita. Some people wondered if global warming increased the number of big storms, but then quieter years followed, so it isn 't really the number of storms. Are scientists confident that tropical cyclones will increase in intensity as the world warms?
0: indeed, they have already. Um, if you look at the, the best tracks data, or IB tracks, which is a record of, of all the tropical cyclones across the planet and, and or at least our best estimate of those. Now, if you look at the satellite era, so that's from 1980 to now, and you look at the first half of the record and the second half of that record, there are more Category 5 storms in the second half than in the first half, and quite a bit, quite a bit more. And so that's an indication that the most intense storms have become in, have more intense. In our hypothetical Category 6, there are five storms that have reached that intensity, and they're all in the last decade, starting in 2013 with Typhoon Haiyan.
1: So why do we need to add a new number?
0: Well, I mean, you could argue we don't. Um, but what we're we're arguing is that adding a new category would highlight this increased danger of the most intense storms from climate change. We don't even touch the other criticisms of the Saffir-Simpson scale because that that being that it doesn't really inform about directly about flood risk, and and we feel strongly that. The products from the National Hurricane Center are are excellent, state-of-the-art products that that do provide very critical information, and in that uh, media coverage isn't usually the, often often misses the this point. And so, you know, if you're if you live in Florida and you know you live near the coast, you need to know what the danger of storm surge is, and the category is kind of a moot point. And likewise, if you live inland and you live near you know a creek or a river or a culvert or something, you want to know what the what the risk of flooding from rainfall is. These are different things. A single number is not going to be able to convey that kind of information. And so so we're strong advocates for using all the information we have, using all the products that are provided by the forecast centers to inform the public of of immediate impending dangers. And and like I said, we're not dealing with that immediate impending danger. We're more concerned with highlighting the increased danger from, you know, long-term danger from climate change.
1: I was thinking about this, and maybe another reason to extend the tropical cyclone scale beyond Cat 5, some coastal people are trying to adapt. In Florida, critical infrastructure buildings in the counties of Broward and and Miami-Dade must be designed to withstand Category 5 winds now. Perhaps adaptive buildings designed for that old Cat 5 rating, though, wouldn't survive a Cat 6, so they need to know that winds are stronger.
0: Indeed, and, and these changes in building codes and building practices have been demonstrated to be effective. A colleague of mine, James Stone, at NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, has an interesting paper demonstrating that uh, building codes have gone a long way towards reducing damages.
1: Well, why stop at CAT 6? Uh, what can it hurt to have an open-ended scale? I mean, if and when we get to 190 miles per hour winds, uh, why can't there be a CAT 7 to express that?
0: Well, we actually looked at that, and, you know, we we had a methodology for fe- setting the thresholds based on spacing between categories 2, 3, 4, and 5, and so we did look at category 7, and originally I had thought about having that in the paper, but we found that even in a three or four degree warmer world, the risk of that intensive storm was minimal. And so we didn't feel that a seventh category was actually necessary.
1: You're listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest from Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory is senior research scientist Dr. Michael Wehner. He leads a new paper calling for a Cat Six storm level as climate change pumps up the weather's. Michael, can big climate models show and account for extreme storms like a Cat 5 tropical cyclone?
0: Well, that's an interesting question, and we actually dealt with that in our paper. We provided three lines of evidence. The first was the actual observations. The second was the speed limit concept we talked about. And the third was the latest generation of climate models. I call them tropical cyclone-permitting models or hurricane-permitting models. And these are much more computationally expensive than the climate models that are used in the U.S. National Climate Assessment or the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change that don't have the fidelity. They don't have the resolution to capture uh, hurricanes. But these new models, because those models divide up the planet into grids maybe about 100 kilometers or 200 kilometers across, and obviously that's much larger than than, uh, these kind of storms, these new models, where where they divide up the planet into little boxes at 25 kilometers, can capture some of the realism, not all, but some of the realism of tropical cyclones. And in particular, they do a very well, pretty. Some of them do a particularly good job at the relationship between the minimum pressure at the center of the storm and the maximum winds. And so, what we did is we picked the three best models in terms of being able to capture uh, Category Five storms and looked at those simulations both in the present day and simulations of a warmer climate. And all three of these models showed substantial increases in the risk of Category 6 storms.
1: There still is a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen in this global experiment. Some models capable of handling cyclones show the atmosphere above 2 degrees of warming becomes more stable with fewer big storms, anywhere from 45% to 18% fewer storms. Does this clash with the need for a CAT 6 classification? Maybe things are just going to calm down.
0: Well, there are actually two separate questions in in the question you asked. One is, what happens to the total number of storms? Now, we have to remember that most of the tropical cyclones across the planet are either um, Category 1 storms or tropical storms, sometimes called Category 0 And the question is, you know, what's going to happen with those? And this is hotly debated right now. Um, Modelers like myself generally feel that that number is going to go down, that the total number of tropical cyclones globally will go down. Like I said, this is hotly debated. There are other scientists who were very credible that that feel that that's not the case. But I think everyone agrees, and this is what Jim Costin and I and Mataki Sato wrote in Chapter 11 of the uh, in a governmental panel on climate change about tropical cyclones, is that the proportion of intense storms, Category 4 and 5 at the time, will increase. And the if the total number of storms were to decrease only a little or to not change at all, then the number of intense storms would increase. And that's what's happened so far. But if the number of storms were to decrease a lot because of the stability of the atmosphere, of a warmer atmosphere... Then you could see the total number of of category fours and fives go down, but the strongest storms would still be this would still be stronger, and so we think that even regardless of what happens to the total number, a category six addition to the, the Saffir-Simpson scale could be justified for that reason.
1: Scientists and meteorologists know this Saffir-Simpson storm category system only includes wind speed. I'm not sure the public realizes other big storm risks like extreme rains, flooding, or storm surge are not included in that rating. Why were those impacts separated out in 2009, and do we need a better way to warn the public of total storm risks?
0: Well, I asked Jim this, actually, because he knows much more about the history of the Sepperson scale than I do. And and his reply was that it just wasn't uh, working particularly well for conveying storm surge risk. And so, the best thing to do for storm surge risk is to consult the maps that National Hurricane Center provides in their forecast prior to the event. And those, you know, I've watched this very, very keenly over, you know, every, every time there's a big storm, and they're remarkably accurate. And so, um, if you live in a hurricane prone region and you live along the coast, this is a product you want to pay attention to. You know, and it's not a number, it's a map and it will tell you, you know, where the risk is and you may be, you know, on the outskirts of the te- of, of the risk area or you may be in a place where because of the angle of the, the trajectory of the storm relative to the coastline may may not cause a big storm surge or it might. And you can't really put that into a number. You have to look at a map.
1: So the Saffir-Simpson CAT scale is known to North Americans, Europeans, but it's not used in China. They have their own system reaching its highest level of super typhoon at 51 uh, meters per second or 115 miles per hour. And that's below our Cat 3 so it, it sounds to me like the American system. The Chinese also appear to lack the language for climate-driven monster storms above 150 miles an hour. India uses yeah. their own different systems. So does Australia. Would a global storm scale help people understand what is happening in other parts of the world?
0: Yeah, I imagine it would. I think I think there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of nuance in the messaging to the public, however. Because the Saffir-Simpson scale is familiar to, to us in the Western Hemisphere, I mean, it, it seemed logical for us to, to focus on that, but we didn't actually deal with these other scales. But, of course, the risk of these intense storms is increased in in other parts of the world, too. In fact, you know, the Western Pacific is probably the most likely area, which is, well, actually, that's where we've seen four of these five storms, Category 6 storms, and so that is the the part of the world where the risk is the highest. But I guess I should also mention that there is a risk of Category 6 storms, according to our analysis, in, in the Gulf of Mexico that's not trivial, that increases dramatically with warming, even at the modest warming levels of the Paris Agreement. Um, at 1.5, the 1.5-degree the global warming level, which is the very aggressive emission reduction target from the Paris Agreement, would double the risk of Category 6 storms in the Gulf compared to the year 2000. And we are almost there now. And so that's of concern, and, and the, that risk would be tripled at 2 degrees and quadrupled at 3-degree global warming level.
1: One of the citations in your paper led me off on another question which isn't directly in your paper, but perhaps you can comment. Uh, Leon Simons and James Hansen claim sulfate emissions over the Pacific from shipping acted to cool the planet until those emissions were slashed by international regulations. In his 2016 study, Adam Sobel and colleagues wrote, quote, although greenhouse gas-driven warming increases potential intensity of storms, climate model simulations suggest that aerosol cooling has largely cancelled that effect over the historical record. End quote, So did those bands of shipping sulfates also moderate the intensity of tropical cyclones? And if that is true, maybe we're going to see never-before-seen superstorms appearing in coming years as countries work to clean up their air pollution.
0: Well, it is true that sulfate aerosol emissions have a cooling effect it does tend to be pretty local, and so the shipping reduction that went into effect relatively recently would be, in my mind, expected to cause a rather sudden increase in surface temperatures over the ocean. How much that is, I think, is quite debatable right now. Um, Hansen comes on one side, other people are coming on, and it's not quite as large. Um, I think that that's a detail that still needs to be to be worked out. But it is also true that aerosol emissions have, in the United States, suppressed hurricane activity in the Atlantic, and that has been, been among other things, um, and that has been you know, reduced substantially since the Clean Air Act in the United States and similar legislation in Europe. And so um, there's been somewhat more active seasons now than, than when we were heavily polluting the atmosphere with aerosol.
1: I'd like you to help us understand projections for increasing days of winds above your proposed Category 6 level. At 2 degrees of warming, a wide band from East Africa across India and Indochina appear to get anywhere from 5 to 25 days, where winds above 157 miles per hour are expected, if I'm reading that right. That sounds like over a month at 3 degrees. How should we interpret that map in Figure 3?
0: Well, again, there's some nuance here that's important. This map is the potential maximum intensity. And, you know, for that potential to be realized, it has to be, you know, a perfect storm. And what do I mean by that? Well, it means that there's two other things that have to be in place that are not contained in the speed limit in those maps. Uh, One is is that there's low wind shear. By that, I mean that the difference between the large-scale steering winds at low altitudes are similar to those at high altitude. If there's a big difference in the winds at these different altitudes, then the storms tend to be tilted and don't reach these these maximum potential wind speeds. And so there's some parts of the world where this doesn't happen as often, you know, and so... It does. You can get these in, you know, say, the Indian Ocean where this potential is very high, but it's not as likely as, say, in the Western Pacific or in the Gulf of Mexico. And so the number of Category 5 or the fraction of storms that reach Category 5 in those regions is higher. So when I look at those maps, I, I sort of have in the back of my mind, you know, where do Category 5 storms happen a lot? You know, these are the places where Category 6 storms could happen you know, you're right. You know, in some of these regions, there would be about a month, or maybe two months, even in some cases, under these very warm emission scenarios, where the potential for a Category Six storm is there. You know, if the perfect storm just happens to happen. Now, fortunately, in the Gulf of Mexico, we haven't had, we haven't been unlucky, in, or we've been lucky in that the perfect storm hasn't happened when when we were at potential intensity of Category Six. Um, that's not to mean that it can't happen. Um, it, may, it probably will at some point. I hope it doesn't, but it might. So that's that's sort of something one needs to look at these maps and say, okay, where where do the ten storms actually occur? Because again, the speed limit doesn't contain all the information because it can't really because the uh, the wind shear varies a lot from you know one week to the next.
1: You have published hundreds of studies about climate change and extreme events, Michael. What are you working on now?
0: Well, I'm working a bit on um, heat waves. Because i spent a lot of time in the last few years on on tropical cyclones, and I haven't quite said everything I want to say on that. We're trying to do something on storm surge. We've written a lot about the effect of climate change on rainfall. For instance, for Hurricane Ian last year, we wrote that climate change increased the rainfall by 19%. Um, we also wrote a lot of papers about Hurricane Harvey and the flood and the impacts, finding that... 30% more homes in Harris County were flooded because of climate change. But I want to get back to heat waves, which was sort of where I started, and particularly the combination of high temperature and either high humidity because of the impacts on human health, particularly those who work outside. I'm particularly interested in agricultural workers in California, many of whom are poor, some of whom are undocumented. But I'm also interested in high temperatures and windy conditions because of the risk of wildfires.
1: And, as we learned in another interview, because of the risk of power outages, uh, which also goes up with these extreme heat events, we'll be looking forward to that research from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. We've been speaking with senior research scientist Dr. Michael Wehner. Find links to all the science we just talked about in my weekly show blog at ecoshock. Michael Wehner, thank you so much for sharing time with Ecoshock listeners.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: I'm Alex Smith reporting. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, Ecoshock.org. This
2: is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith.
1: They tell you so-called natural gas is dependable. Those big electric generators are the bedrock. Except when they fail, causing massive blackouts during extreme heat or chilling winter storms. The Union of Concerned Scientists warns gas dependence makes us more vulnerable. Here to explain is Mark Specht, co-author of a new briefing called Gas Malfunction. Mark is a senior analyst for the Western States with the UCS Climate and Energy Program. Mark Specht, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, tell us about the infamous 2021 Texas blackout. What happened during that storm they called URI?
2: Right. So that storm actually was a it was a quite cold storm, and the reason it was ended up being so devastating for people in Texas is because of its impacts on the power grid in particular. And so because of the cold weather, basically large amounts of energy infrastructure, especially gas plants and gas fuel production facilities as well, all failed because of the cold. And when those facilities failed that we need to generate electricity, that actually led to prolonged multi-day blackouts for a huge portion of the population in Texas. And those blackouts led to really tragic losses of life with hundreds of folks losing their lives uh, due to various causes during the storm. And hypothermia, which surely was uh, exacerbated by these blackouts and the lack of heat, was a big cause of those fatalities.
1: Why did those gas plants fail, leading to those dangerous blackouts?
2: I'd say there are two different reasons for the gas plant's failures. The first reason is just the plants themselves failing. So so this would happen because it's just so cold and different parts of the plant aren't ready for that kind of cold. And maybe uh, a certain part of the plant froze and the plant can't operate without that without that particular component. And so if a critical part of the plant fails, you have to shut down the entire plant until you can get that fixed. So... Freezing issues at, at power plants are one of the main issues why gas plants failed in that storm. The other reason is actually shortages of gas fuel. So demand for gas was much higher during this winter storm because more folks were using it for heating. But also folks were using it to generate electricity much more so. And at the same time, some of the gas production wells and other facilities, pipelines, had encountered issues, basically limited the gas fuel supply. And so even if you have a gas power plant that didn't freeze, that was good to go, some of these power plants had to shut down because they just couldn't get enough gas to burn and weren't able to generate electricity because of those gas shortages. So there are a few different reasons why the gas plants failed in this storm, with the freezing issues at the power plants being the main one.
1: So is this just something that happens in Texas when you looked into gas plant operations? Is there a pattern to some of the biggest malfunctions in the American electric system?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So we looked at five recent major winter storms that jeopardized grid reliability in the United States. And what we found was across those storms, which weren't just in Texas, they were in many other parts of the U.S. as well, across those five winter storms, gas plants were the major, the main type of capacity that was failing on the power grid and the main type of capacity that was leading to some of those grid reliability issues that we saw across those five winter storms. At the same time, we also found that gas plants in particular failed disproportionately in comparison to other types of resources. So in comparison to the amount of gas plants that we have on the grid, they were failing much more so than other types of resources like coal or wind or nuclear, or other other kinds of energy production sources. So gas plants, they are more susceptible to these cold weather events and cause more gas failures than for other types of resources.
1: Well, how much lag time is there between wells unable to produce or deliver and gas plant shutdown? Is there buffer and stored gas?
2: In most instances, I don't think there's a lot of, Buffer. There are some gas storage facilities. I think those are more located in the western United States, though, where there haven't been quite as many cold winter weather events that are threatening the grid. A lot of these events have happened in the eastern parts of the U.S., where I don't think big storage gas storage facilities are quite as prevalent. So there isn't quite as much of a buffer there.
1: So this is a a critical weakness unique to the gas infrastructure. Unlike coal plants or hydroelectricity, they can't store fuel in advance on the site. Do you think this applies to gas-powered electric generating plants anywhere in the world?
2: Yeah, I think it does, especially places that have cold winter weather. I think these kinds of failures that we've seen in the U.S. in the past decade or so are quite, quite possible that they could happen. All it takes is a really cold winter storm that freezes up a bunch of power plants or freezes up the supply of gas, and that could lead to pretty significant grid reliability issues and the potential for extreme outages like we saw in Texas with winter storm URI.
1: You and co-author Paul Arbash also found a crippling cross-dependency between generators and fuel supplies. The gas plant goes down without more methane to burn, but... With the power down, the gas uh, production wells and pipelines can't run either because they need electricity. It sounds like a a bad system to depend on.
2: Yes, that mutual dependence is certainly a vulnerability for the gas system because, as you've said, especially in some of these recent winter storms, we saw instances where there wasn't enough electricity to go around, and so power got cut to some of the facilities that produce gas. But once you cut power to the facilities that produce gas, you're decreasing the gas supply, and there might be more gas power plants that aren't able to operate because there's not enough gas to go around. And you might have to cut more electricity demand because of that. So there is a bit of a, a vicious cycle that can happen there because of gas production's dependence on electricity and electricity generation's dependence on gas production.
1: And those frackers in America are depending more and more on electricity. A new article in the Wall Street Journal says gas and oil fracking in the Permian basement is adding new pressure to electricity demand in New Mexico. As frackers electrify their operations, they want to bring down emissions. Power demand jumps 15%. So even greening fossil fuel production may add to gas burning for electricity and all that vulnerability. And I might add a third of the electricity in New Mexico comes from burning coal. So it's really kind of an ironic setup that that greening might add to more electric woes and demand.
2: Yeah, it certainly could lead to some vulnerabilities there for the the gas system. I will say, when it comes to solutions, maybe we'll get to that. I think I I definitely would caution against making big investments in trying to shore up gas plants or shore up the gas infrastructure that's used to feed gas plants, because I think there are better solutions that we could use to ensure a reliable and clean electricity grid. But perhaps we're getting to that.
1: After these blackouts happened in the U.S., the industry always promises to winterize. Aren't they adapting, really, and can they?
2: I think winterization can help, perhaps in some limited circumstances, but it's definitely not the be-all, end-all solution to the issues that we've seen with widespread gas plant failures. There might be some instances where it makes sense to make some small investments perhaps in winterizing a power plant to make sure that critical components don't fail during a bout of cold weather. And similarly, it might make sense to do some, some minor winterization efforts to ensure that the gas supply doesn't freeze up. But overall, I think it's really important to embrace clean energy solutions that would actually reduce emissions and provide different sources of, sources of electricity to the, to the grid. And to the extent that we're going to invest in the gas system, I think what's really important is that there's no, currently no regulation of reliability for the gas system in the U.S. And I think it's really important to get some sort of regulatory authority over the gas system to ensure that there is gas when we need it to generate electricity, but at the same time to make sure that we're transitioning away from gas and phasing down fossil fuels to mitigate climate change in the U.S.
1: We talked about winter. What about extreme heat waves? Is gas production dependable when most people crank up the air conditioning to survive?
2: It is another type of weather when gas plants can face some reliability challenges. So we certainly have seen instances where, in really extreme weather, we see more gas plants tripping offline see more gas plants with derated capacity, so they just can't generate quite as much electricity as they usually can. Certainly, the failures in summer haven't been historically as severe as some of the failures we've seen in winter. But nonetheless, summer is another time where gas plants are quite vulnerable to the weather, and they are more susceptible to failure and reduced generation.
1: Yeah, I think reduced generation is the big thing. They can't cool themselves off properly, so they have to burn a little bit less. Now, not covered in your UCS briefing, gas plants also blow up. I mean, we are fed photos on social media of some wind turbine somewhere on fire, but that's a tiny risk compared to a gas explosion. I'm thinking like the the California Hayward gas plant exploded in May 2022. Methane is just dangerous stuff compared to solar panels and other green energy. Are regulators and operators taking gas vulnerability risks into their plans?
2: Overall, in terms of the extent to which grid operators and utilities and regulators are counting on gas, currently there is a trend to over-rely on gas power plants. So basically everyone's making these assumptions that gas power plants will be there when we need them. They're going to be more reliable than history has shown them to actually be. And I think that's one of the takeaways from this piece of analysis that we did is we really do need to reassess the grid reliability contributions of gas power plants to make sure that we're not overvaluing them, since that can lead to some of these grid reliability issues that we've seen, especially in winter storms and also in summer weather.
1: Well, you talked about energy diversity. The United States gets about 40 percent of its electricity by burning this methane gas or natural gas. In Germany in 2020, even before the Russian gas cutoff, their electricity from gas was only 12%. Instead, over half of German electricity came from wind, solar, nuclear, and hydroelectricity, with wind, the biggest single contributor. In 2023, China got more than 50% of its powers from renewables. China. So it sounds like Europe and China are kind of leaving the U.S. behind in this fossil fuel age and a vulnerable power system. What do you think?
2: I certainly think the U.S. has a lot of work to do to transition to clean sources of electricity. Wind, solar, geothermal, energy storage, all of these are the kinds of clean resources that we really need to be building at a really large scale and making huge investments in. And as long as we have a mixture of different renewable energy technologies, like the ones I just mentioned, And also diversity in geography of where these renewables are located. So if you have solar, wind at various locations across the country, and also transmission available to deliver those resources to the load centers where folks are using electricity. I think having diverse renewable energy technologies, having diverse locations, having energy storage, transmission, all of that together can help ensure that the grid is very, very reliable and also generate really large amounts of clean energy that can help reduce emissions and minimize the use of fossil fuels, such as coal and natural gas.
1: And despite all the vulnerability and problems that you found, the U.S. is loaded with frac gas at the moment, and uh, the more new gas power generating plants are being built and coming online, designed to run for decades, even while the world heats up. What does the Union of Concerned Scientists say about new gas plant approval? What do you recommend?
2: It's a tricky question. I'll, I'll start by saying that in no circumstances do we think it makes sense to build new gas plants in uh, environmental justice or disadvantaged communities, whatever term you want to use. I, I think it's past time to stop building gas plants in communities that are already overburdened with the impacts of fossil fuels the air quality issues, all the other impacts that come with having fossil fuel infrastructure in your neighborhood. So I think it's important to, to put that on the table. At the same time, in general, I think there are really only extremely limited circumstances when it would make sense to build a new gas plant. I, I think in almost all cases, there are going to be better clean energy solutions that utilities should be pursuing. There might be some instances where for grid reliability purposes, it might make sense to build a new gas plant. But I think it's really important in those cases to also go into the situation with eyes wide open and to really do the analytics that you need to do to figure out what the actual reliability contribution of those gas plants will be, taking into account the possibility for really catastrophic failures in extreme winter weather like we've seen in the past decade or so. So overall, I think really would caution against building new gas plants and certainly no new gas plants in environmental justice communities.
1: You are a senior analyst for the Western branch of the Concerned Scientists. Mark, what else do you work on and what is coming up?
2: Ooh, I think one thing I've been working on quite a bit recently is what we've called Western grid regionalization, which is basically creating a bigger power grid that can... Share Clean Energy Across the Western United States. And it actually is related to the topic we've been talking about in the sense that having a bigger power grid with more transmission connecting different areas of the West would really help all jurisdictions in the Western U.S. help achieve clean energy goals by moving clean energy around to where it's needed and just sharing those clean resources so that we can ensure grid reliability and reduce emissions on the grid all well, collaborating together to have one big, clean Western grid, essentially. So that is one other thing I've been working on that I think is quite relevant to the conversation we're having today.
1: From the Union of Concerned Scientists, you just heard Mark Specht, along with Paul Arbaj. Mark just released the briefing, Gas Malfunction, Calling into Question the Reliability of Gas Power Plants. You can find that free at www.ucsusa.org or use a link in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Mark, thank you for talking with us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign-up, just the latest info, free for all. ecoshock.org. In January 2024, an innovative group called Climobilize interviewed 24 thought leaders about the climate crisis. Here, Brad Zarnett asks Joseph Mertz the fundamental question, why has declaring climate emergencies failed to create meaningful change? We all need to know. His guest is Joseph Mertz, founder and chairman of the Mertz Institute. The Merce Institute in New Zealand is based largely on addressing ecological overshoot at a behavioral level. Joseph launched the Institute's Overshoot Behavior Lab and is currently forming the complementary Future Behavior Lab. He is a senior fellow at the Global Evergreening Alliance and also serves on the executive committee of the Stable Planet Alliance. Joseph is the lead author of the recent paper, World scientists warning the behavioral crisis driving ecological overshoot. So, Dr. Merce, why has declaring climate emergencies failed to create meaningful change?
3: So, to answer this question, I'm going to launch into a bit of a spiel on ecological overshoot, because understanding overshoot is critical for anyone interested in this topic. So climate change is just a symptom of something much larger, something called anthropogenic ecological overshoot. And essentially, overshoot has a range of symptoms that we know of, and we're seeing them all around us. And they include climate change and ocean acidification and biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse and all sorts of other things. And I'd love to go into these, but unfortunately, we don't have time. But I'll just talk a bit more about overshoot. And I'd like to say as well that these other symptoms, <coughs> while they're not covered very much in the media, are, uh, some of them to me are even more concerning than climate change and more uh, immediate also. So I, I recently wrote a paper, a peer-reviewed paper with a number of my colleagues called World Scientists Warning, A Behavioral Crisis Driving Ecological Overshoot. And I figure some of you might have read the paper. Um, The response has been absolutely overwhelming. It has an attention score on the 98th percentile, which is far better than I ever expected. And it's approaching 12, actually more than that now, I think about 13,000 reads in just a couple of months and downloads. So uh, it's doing well, which is great. In the paper, we define overshoot as the... Human consumption of natural resources at rates faster than they can be replenished, and entropic waste production in excess of Earth's assimilative and processing capacity. How this is essentially come about is through increases in consumption and waste and population. And previously, large expansions of the human enterprise were held in check by negative feedback in the form of disease and resource depletion and things like that. But in the last few hundred years, our access to easy, what we call exosomatic energy in the form of fossil fuels has enabled us to reduce these feedbacks. And subsequently our population and our consumption and our waste has gone through the roof and has led us into the state of ecological overshoot. And I mentioned population consumption and waste. I call these the three levers of overshoot and they're worth remembering because they're critical and everything seems to come back to them. And there are some absolutely remarkable figures when it comes to highlighting just how anomalous the last few hundred years have been for our species and a multitude of other species, unfortunately, as a result, and the the broader ecosphere. The most remarkable of these figures, I think, is, is around population growth. And one of the figures I like to talk about, and we've also got on the paper, is but it took us 250,000 years to reach a population of 1 billion. And then with fossil fuels, it took us 200 years to go from 1 billion to 8 billion. And that last billion was added in, in just 11 years. Our esteemed colleague, Bill Reese, often says that our species is in uh, the, the late stage of a one-off boom bust cycle. And I really think that anyone with a basic understanding of ecology would find it difficult to disagree with them. So while our access to energy enables ecological overshoot and its symptoms like climate change and and ocean acidification and these other things, it is undoubtedly human behavior that drives overshoot. And the behaviors driving overshoot or what we refer to in the Institute as overshoot behaviors are now displayed and exploited to the extent that collectively they constitute what we've termed a crisis of human behavior or the human behavioral crisis. In the paper we refer to this as specifically the consequences of the innate suite of human behaviors that were once adaptive in early hominid evolution but have now been exploited to serve the global industrial economy. And although that definition is evolving slightly, the main thing to understand is that in its most rudimentary form, overshoot and its symptoms are a physical problem. Uh, It's the physical result of our physical behaviors in the physical world. At present, these behaviors are the product of a whole raft of, of different things, including the intentional exploitation like we talk about in the paper and you can read more about it in the paper if you do want to read it. Uh, But essentially our our behaviours come down to our biology and our environment. And the most progressive movements that I see are about changing attitudes or beliefs or values as if they're synonymous with our behaviours. And, of course, they play a role in in influencing our behaviour. Uh, As a load of uh, a load of other things do also, but they're not the same thing. And what I mean is that uh, when when you're changing attitudes or values, it doesn't guarantee a specific behavioral outcome. And right now we need specific behavioral outcomes. We can't just turn off the taps anymore. We actually have to restore the ecosphere, which requires very specific behaviors we need to essentially reverse a few hundred years of geoengineering, which was us all going to work for a few hundred years geoengineering the planet. And they came about, this this, this geoengineering has come about from easy to perform, hugely beneficial behaviours. So we need to find the equivalent that's going to require uh, the widespread adoption of comparatively easy, beneficial, and quite specific behaviors. And that they, they won't come about just by changing values or changing attitudes alone. They will only come about if we anchor ourselves in behavior and design what is needed uh, to perform at our ecological peak. Once we know what, what, what that looks like, what those specific behaviors are, we can work backward from there. In other words, we need to start by designing the future at a behavioural level. And all of this is relevant to answering answering this question. So in, in the past, we we haven't had to think about our behaviours in the way that we do now uh, because it was fine for maladaptive drivers to exist because they didn't have existential consequences. But now they do. And the specific behaviors that we collectively display over the coming decades will be critical to the survival of not only our species, but of all of millions of other species and potentially all complex life on Earth. So imagine if we designed the social norms and the social boundaries that drive our behaviors in relation to overshoot if we actually actively designed them to be as ecologically restorative and as beneficial as possible. And I'm not just talking about curbing maladaptive behaviors and, and looking at meeting our, our needs through the current lens or the paradigm, or the current paradigm, sorry. I'm talking about completely looking at human needs outside of the current paradigm. If we if we're doing things through the current paradigm, uh, we're likely to be building in a multitude of redundancies and inefficiencies into the new behaviors that we're that we're looking to promote. So even our idea of needs comes from the current paradigm and is severely distorted, in my opinion. Uh, this is as another thing Bill Rees always says this is the single most anomalous period in human history. and I often think of it in the sense of, well, if it is the single, well, it is, I mean, it definitely is the single most anomalous period in human history. Should we be designing our future norms based on what we have right now? I think we should be extremely cautious about anything we consider normal right now, to be honest. So in saying all that, I am yet to see anything that says it isn't possible for us to behaviorally design the new norms of the future. Um, we know how to effectively shape human behavior. And this is a really core part of the work that we're doing in the Institute. So now that I've kind of covered off the sort of background I, I would like to, of, of our current predicament and why it's larger than just climate, I want to sort of swing back around to the question. So to get back to the question, this is a behavioral crisis. Whether you look at just the climate side or, or some of the other symptoms of overshoot, it is a crisis of our behavior. And that means we need behavior change. And declaring climate emergencies or uh, anything else that simply serves to raise awareness or concern is an incredibly ineffective way of driving behavior change. It is not the first tool you would pick up if your objective was to drive behavior change. And you can see with data from Yale, concern and awareness in the US in regard to climate change has increased for quite some time. But what's changed in in, in our behavior there, not a lot. In fact, I think you could probably say that things are getting worse in a lot of ways. So why is that? Well, that's because the drivers of our maladaptive behaviour remain, remain in place and are, I think, getting uh, more pervasive. So until we treat this as a behavioural crisis and address the drivers of our behaviour beyond things like these defaults of if we raise awareness, the behaviour will change, which is just completely flawed, until we start looking at this as a crisis of human behaviour, and then looking at the drivers of that behavior that exist in our society and start turning those drivers in the direction where we need them to go, we're not going to see meaningful change.
2: Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org.
1: That was Dr. Joseph Mers from the New Zealand Mers Institute and Overshoot Behavior Lab. This short interview was hosted by Brad Zarnett for the nonprofit climate group Climobilize. You can find the multi interview event at Climobilize.com. It's on YouTube or look for the link in my show blog at Ecoshock.org. Just a couple of comments on that. Everything we hear from Radio Ecoshock guests confirm it is not a lack of knowledge or technology preventing humans from avoiding an overheated planet. We are in a behavioral crisis for sure. But I question how much agency anyone has over human behavior and worry about exactly who will design our future-friendly lives. I will outline a few thorny questions in my blog, and I hope to talk with Dr. Mers about this later this spring. Finally, as you might guess by the tone of recent programs, I'm getting super sick of being lied to by media, governments, and industry altogether. I'm also discouraged by most people's agreement to live with those false reports of reality. Here is just one more big lie from a pile as high as Mount Everest. Emissions from the Canadian tar sands are thousands of times higher than reported. What a surprise! According to the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, quote, New measurements of total gaseous organic carbon concentrations in the air over the Athabasca oil sands in Canada suggest that traditional methods of estimating this pollution can severely underestimate emissions, according to an analysis by Megan Hay and colleagues. Using aircraft-based measurements, he et al. conclude that the total gaseous organic carbon emissions from oil sands operations exceed industry-reported values by 1,900% to over 6,300% across the studied facilities. Measured facility-wide emissions represented approximately 1% of extracted petroleum, resulting in total organic emissions equivalent to all of that from other sources across Canada combined, the researchers write. End quote from AAAS. Greenhouse gas emissions from the Alberta tar sands are equal to emissions from all the transportation, home heating, fossil fuel energy, generating stations, and constructions, all of it, the whole fossil-powered emissions of Canada, doubled by one industrial enterprise. Most of the profits go to foreign corporations and investors, mainly from the United States and China, it is all in the report, Who Benefits? An Investigation of Foreign Ownership in the Tar Sands at StandEarth.com. The Canadian government could have flown the same air sampling planes over the tar sands at any time. They didn't want to know. Instead, they insisted on accepting lowball reports from the industry itself. These emissions reports were passed on to the United Nations as though they were real instead of thousands of times too low? I have been in email dialogue with the co-author in that tar sands emission study, Drew Gentner, at Yale, but he tells me the team decided not to do any radio or television interviews. So, no interview for you. The paper is called Total Organic Carbon Measurements Reveal Major Gaps in Petrochemical Emissions Reporting. You can find out more about this with links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org. There is a reality. As humans scurry for shelter or safety from the latest extreme storms, floods, fires, and droughts, and heat, reality is speaking back to us, and it never lies. Joseph Merz suggests even the truth cannot save us. Most of the time, information only changes behavior marginally. We have other drivers, and we can ignore it, we can argue against it, we can pretend otherwise. The deeper drivers of the overarching crisis is overshoot for sure. Even if there was no climate crisis, we are slicing away at the biological underpinnings of life, all life, including our own. There are limits to population plus terraforming and consuming the Earth. We have already passed six out of nine major limits known as planetary boundaries. That was announced by the Stockholm Resilience Institute in September 2023. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for your support, for listening again, and caring about our world.